0: We're back in Mark's Gospel this week, having had a couple of weeks looking at some other things in our distinctive series. And it's been one of those lovely moments of actually preparing for this this week and thinking it's coming at just the right time of year for us, this parable that Jesus says. Um, Again, the family meeting on Tuesday, you've heard already this morning, we were praying about all our different Christmas events. Um, There's some of a very crowded slide with lots of different things coming up. Um, But yeah, we've got obviously this coming Saturday the ladies' Christmas charity desserts evening. Then the 11th in the afternoon carols by starlight. The 18th in the morning all age carol service. And for the first time, really excitingly, we're going to be having a carol service on the Airs Monsel on Saturday the 17th. So lots coming up this time of year. And as Dan said, in many ways, many churches in the UK, including us. We wanna make the most of Christmas because culturally, Christmas is a time of year when people who would never think of going to a church, never think maybe of hearing anything about Jesus are actually often open and happy to do so. They're open and happy to sing carols that maybe remind them of their childhood. They're open and happy to think, what is this annual holiday? And we wanna make the most of that by putting on events. And actually, as I say, this parable of Jesus, I think has come at just the right time in our series of Mark. I'd love to say it was planned, it wasn't. But also, it was um, by a good God. But when we do invite friends or even think of inviting friends to these events, often the question in our minds is how will my friend, family member, neighbor respond if I invite them? Will they be happy? Will they be offended? And maybe even more so, if they then come to any of these events, how will they respond to what we put on, to people in my church family, to the message they hear about Jesus? And so this parable in Mark, so the context of it is that Jesus, he is preparing his disciples for mission and for the different responses they will encounter when they're on mission together as they proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in this world. So so remind ourselves of the context of Mark, and we've been away for a couple of weeks, but Mark chapter three, um, Jesus begins to send his disciples, initially just the twelve to preach and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom to the surrounding towns. That's Mark 3, 14 to 15. Then Mark 3, 20 to 35, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Jesus, as he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, he continues to face opposition and to be misunderstood as he does that. And so the question for the disciples probably is, well, what about us? What can we expect when we are the ones, we're the messengers of the kingdom? Jesus doesn't always seem to get a great response what about us what can we expect and of course you translate that to today for any Christian sitting here thinking of maybe praying about and inviting people to any Christmas events what can I expect is my friend gonna be happy is my friend gonna come to faith is my friend gonna be offended is my friend gonna reject this and in the parable of the sower Jesus wants his disciples listening to him to understand something there will always be different responses to Jesus and his word. Jesus, he's honest with the disciples here. Not everyone is going to respond the way you might want them to. Not everyone's going to welcome our message. We need to be prepared for that. But actually alongside that, if you like sobering reality, Jesus also has amazing news for us. He says that his word has the power to save and transform anyone who receives it through faith. His word has got got amazing power in it to change us. And that is a message of hope and encouragement when we think about the people we love who don't yet know Jesus. That's a message of hope and encouragement for you today. If you're someone who you think, I maybe don't yet know and love Jesus, but I'm, I'm interested, I'm intrigued. What would it be like for me to know him? Actually, Jesus says his word can transform anyone who receives it from him. So let's listen to this parable of Jesus together now. And the setting is very similar. If we've been in Mark this past term, verse 1 of chapter 4, he's teaching by the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And and again, there's a large crowd round, him. this is happening a lot in Mark. So large, Mark tells us, that Jesus got into a boat and sat in it on the lake in order to teach them. And we don't know precisely where Jesus was when all this happened, but there's, there's a good possibility, a possible location for this is a place called, um, it wasn't called this before Jesus was there, called the Bay of Parables. So it's a, that's, a, that's a good name. Um, and it's in, it's in modern day Israel between Capernaum and Tabga, I think it is. And if you see from the picture, the land sort of slopes down into this bay and people have discovered it's a really natural amphitheater. So Israeli scientists, not Christians, have done some research and they've verified a human voice can easily be heard by several thousand people on the shore. So Jesus in a boat, it's just a brilliant location to speak to a large crowd of people. The geography is just perfect. And turning to verse 3, we learn that Jesus teaches this crowd using a particular method. Verse 3, he taught them many things by parables, says Mark. So parables, they are Jesus' preferred form of public teaching through the Gospels. There are 60 different parables recorded in the Gospels, mostly in Matthew and Luke. Mark only has a small number, and John's Gospel doesn't have any parables Jesus speaks. But, but why did Jesus teach so often using parables? Well, we kind of need to define what a parable is. Maybe very simply, a parable is a story from everyday life. Jesus knew the people he was talking to, the times He was living in. So he includes details and settings that would have been really common to first century people. So his parables are full of references to fishing and farming, to housekeeping and family life, to royalty and banquets. But the problem with that definition is we kind of begin to think, oh, parables, they're the nice bits in the gospels for the kids. That's where you get your picture Bible has a great time just doing these wonderful pictures of Jesus stories. We think these are just very sweet stories that Jesus told to kind of keep people entertained. That is not what Jesus is doing. These parables are stories revealed to design, sorry, to reveal what's going on in our hearts and to demand a response from us. And Mark wants to see the purpose of Jesus' parables here. If you look down to verse 10, in Mark 4. Actually, Mark kind of steps away from the scene. So Jesus is in the boat, taking speaking to the crowd, but then Mark goes, I'm just gonna explain what's going on here. So verse 10, he kind of records what happened later on that day with Jesus and his disciples. And then after that little bit, he goes back to Jesus on the lake. And the other parables in Mark 4 are Jesus still on the boat teaching the crowd until at the end of Mark 4, you'll see we have that amazing moment where Jesus goes into a storm with his disciples. So verses 10 to 12 is kind of a little break to understand what parables are all about. And what are parables all about? They are stories from everyday life that reveal our hearts. So a parable is there to reveal something inside us. They're actually designed to unsettle us and to challenge us and to knock us off balance. Again, we get drawn into the story. I mean, they are great stories a lot, and we enjoy the details, the characters, but then suddenly Jesus turns the spotlight on us. And says what about you what about you what is your response going to be alongside these people or these even objects in a parable and jesus has some really sobering words in verses 11 to twelve for us, he says this. Jesus told his disciples, "The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything said in parables, so that, and he quotes Isaiah here, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven." This is a tricky bit because we look at that and going, "Hang on a minute, is Jesus saying he doesn't want people to turn and be forgiven? Is he kind of deliberately hiding?" his message from people, and just telling it to his friends. It's kind of quite a disturbing idea. But I think actually what Jesus is saying is by quoting Isaiah, he's saying that parables demonstrate how much we need Jesus to show us who God is. Parables demonstrate that actually on our own, we're not going to understand who God is and how we can be right with him. So the context of the prophet Isaiah is that the people of Israel had chosen to worship idols, false gods, gods of of wood and stone that were blind and deaf. They couldn't see, they couldn't hear. And Isaiah says again and again, if you keep worshiping idols, you become like them. What you worship, whether it's a person or an object, you keep worshiping it long enough, you become like that object or that person. The good news for a Christian is the more we worship Jesus, there's a promise the more we'll become like him. But if we put our trust in other things and other people, we will become blind and deaf like they are. We'll get to a place where we can no longer hear the word of God when our hearts become hardened against Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, actually, we need the secret of the kingdom of God to be revealed to us. And he's the one who's going to do it. That word in verse 11, translated secret, is the Greek mysterion, it's great words, from where we get our word mystery. Again, Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God in this world, you need to listen to me. You need to hear what I've got to say and let my words change you. So actually, this is an invitation to us to listen to Jesus. So these parables reveal our need for Jesus to explain what's going on. They also reveal, actually, there needs to be a response from us in these parables. They're not just nice stories. We need to respond the way Jesus tells us to. And he makes it clear in this parable, the way you respond, verse three, listen. Verse nine, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, sure, otherwise. Verse 20, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. The response Jesus wants in this parable is that people will be listening to him. And what does it mean to be a disciple for Jesus in this world? We've asked this throughout the This series. We're going to continue asking that question. And this bit of Mark, Mark chapter 4, tells a disciple of Jesus very simply is someone who listens to Jesus and his word. That's what this parable is saying. So let's actually listen to the parable, having done that little little explanation in the middle. Um, Jesus tells the story twice. In Mark 4, once he tells it as a straight story, verses 4 to 9. And then again, he explains the meaning of the parable, verses 14 to 20. And I feel like there's different main characters in each of his tellings. The first couple of verses focus on the farmer. And the second bit focus more on the different types of soil. But all the way through, there is a focus on the seed. And the seed, Jesus says, is the word of God. And the word of God Jesus wants to see is astonishingly powerful. This good news of the kingdom of God has the power to save and transform anyone who hears it and accepts it and allows it to produce a crop, good fruit in their lives. So looking at the first half of the parable then, Jesus' focus here is on the farmer. And and very simply, he just tells the story that the farmer scatters the seed everywhere. A very simple fact in this parable. But actually, as you look at this, to any of Jesus' original hearers, many of them would have been farmers. They would have been sitting there going, yeah, I, I know how to sow seed. And they'd be sitting there thinking to themselves, actually, the farmer Jesus describes, he's not a very good farmer. Because farming in ancient Palestine, it was a tough job. And Jesus shows he knows that. He talks about all the different obstacles that the seed faces in the story, the obstacles to actually the seed taking root. So common wisdom of that time taught that any farmer who wanted to survive must be orderly in the way he farms the land. He must be methodical in in where he sows the seed and careful not to waste the seed. The seed was life, basically. You don't waste it. You're really careful where you plant it. It's against this background The farmer here just seems recklessly extravagant in the way he sows. He scatters the seed far and wide into every corner of his field, even the parts of the field where traditional wisdom would say, you're never going to get a harvest there, farmer. His actions would have looked reckless to Jesus here, even wasteful. He's scattering the seed like there's no tomorrow. Why is he acting this way? I believe Jesus is trying to tell us something about the kingdom of God and about the God of the gospel. This farmer, he says in the parable, wants a harvest and he will go anywhere and scatter the seed anywhere to see that harvest happen. And in that, he's a picture to us of the God of grace in his generosity and extravagance and his desire for people everywhere to come to know him. And we've seen that in Mark's gospel already. If you think back to Mark chapter one, Jesus is in a place called Capernaum. He's a huge hit there. His disciples going, great, just stay here, Jesus. Like keep healing, keep teaching. We're we're, we're a massive hit here. But Mark 1, 38 to 39, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. See, Jesus is committed to, To preach in the gospel is as many places to as many people as possible. And in this, Jesus says he's like his father. The God of the gospel, he is generous and he wants people to be saved. He doesn't hold back. He's not playing it safe like we do. He wants people to be reconciled to himself through Jesus. And the farmer is a picture of that. So as we think about the time of year we're in, as we think about Christmas events and when flyers come to us, we think, well, who could I give this to? We might sometimes think, well, well, what's the point? What's the point? Maybe I invited someone last year they didn't come or, or that person just like we're never gonna get a conversation about spiritual things. But actually here Jesus is saying in this parable to his disciples, Jesus is committed to saving people through us. He is more committed to saving lost people than we are. And he loves the people you know in your life who don't yet know Jesus more than you do. And so when he invites you to play a part in his mission, he's inviting you to share his heart for people. And he is committed to working through us in our weak and imperfect witness to spread the good news of Jesus in every corner of our city and in every corner of our families, our friendship groups, our neighborhoods. The character of the farmer is meant to encourage us in who God is. And it's also meant to tell us that at the end of this first half, the harvest will be extraordinary. It's amazing here. So Jesus, again, we've seen he's not naive. He's very honest about the obstacles that face this seed. He talks about the birds, the rocks, the thorns, the heat of the sun. In one sense, actually, this could be one of the most depressing parables Jesus ever told. Because if you look at the odds, like do the mathematics here, and three quarters of the seed doesn't seem to have the impact the farmer wants. Okay, three quarters of the farmer's efforts seem to be in vain. This should be a massively discouraging picture for any disciple of Jesus. Thanks a lot, Jesus. You're telling me that three quarters of my effort is going to be a waste of time, and now you tell me to go. Thank you very much, Jesus. But that's not how the parable ends. The parable ends with this picture of an amazing harvest. Verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. I am not an ancient Palestinian farmer. I want to disabuse you of that notion if you think I am. But I read up on this. And the average yield in the ancient Middle East has been estimated that one seed might produce in a really good time seven and a half heads of grain. So one to seven and a half. In Jesus' parable, the lowest yield is one to 30 heads of grain, or 60 heads of grain, or even 100 heads of grain. A harvest like this would have been extraordinary in ancient Palestine. Again, the the guys are listening to Jesus going, he's a terrible farmer, this guy. And then he goes, hang on a minute, what? Say that again? 30, 60, 100 times? Again, what's going on in this story? Again, Jesus wants us to see the seed is the word of God." And it has the power to bring new life where, humanly speaking, there is no hope. The God who created all things, who said, let there be light and there was light, is still working today to bring his light into people who are blinded by sin, by selfishness, by death, by suffering. And he has the power to transform people through the message of Jesus. He gives life to the dead, He opens the eyes of the blind, He sets the captive free, all through the power of the word in our lives, and we hear it, accept it, and let it produce good fruit. And Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, a minute ago, but just another bit of Isaiah really helps us to see this Isaiah 55. The Lord speaking as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish. So it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This Christmas, you remember the power in evangelism is never from us. It's not even from really nice events we're putting on the power in evangelism is from the Word of God that leads us to Jesus so what's our job in evangelism our job is to is to pray for the people we know who don't know Jesus is to love them and to ask for opportunities to share the Word of God with them and again one of the things Jesus is talking to a group of his disciples here the twelve and others Verse 10, so he's reminding them, evangelism is not something you do on your own. It's a team sport. It's a team exercise. We each have a part to play in this. We need to be praying for one another, praying for our friends, naming people can pray for me that I would have the opportunity to invite this person and maybe even have the opportunity to meet each other's friends. One book I've read recently talks about merging your universes, the idea that you've got maybe your universe of your church friends, your universe of your non-church friends, Think of ways you could merge those two, get people meeting each other. We're not on our own in this. Maybe a friend of ours is is really well-placed to help a friend of ours explain and understand who Jesus is. But again, we aren't the ones with the power to change people. And if we begin to think we are, we're just gonna end up crushed actually. The power comes from the word of God that leads us to Jesus. And so we want our Christmas events to be events that lead people through the word of God to Jesus. As we sing carols, as we eat mince pies, as we spend time together. So actually this parable is here to encourage us with the character of God. But also the the focus of the second half of the parable, more briefly, just talks about some of those different responses we thought about, these different types of, of soil and the sobering message again is not everyone's gonna accept the good news about Jesus we need to be honest about that but again that Jesus can save and transform anyone who receives his word he's got encouragement for us alongside realism he's honest with us as well as being encouraging to us so we look at these four types of soil there's like four types of soil standing for four different heart responses The first one's a hardened heart, verse 15. Some people, Jesus says, who hear about me, just aren't interested at all. Their hearts are hard to the gospel. Notice he says Satan plays a part in that. He takes away the word for as a chance to take root. It is a harsh reality that Jesus is honest with us about. Sometimes you're going to get nowhere it feels. Now, that doesn't mean a hardened heart can't change. There are loads of examples in the Bible, in church history, actually in the lives of people in our church family where we started off hard towards Jesus and Jesus in time softened our hearts and brought us to him. You think just a big example, I guess, is the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, he was determined to wipe out Christians and then in the end, he himself met Jesus. A hardened heart doesn't have to stay that way. But verse 15 is a necessary reminder to us. There will be people who show no interest at all. Doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. You might need to learn how to do it better, but it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Second part you've got, he talks about a shallow heart. And in some ways, the second type of soil is probably even sadder than the hard heart of verse 15, because the reality here is that not everyone who starts with Jesus will go on with him. Again, if you look at verse 16, it starts off brilliantly. This is the response we want from our friends. Others hear the word, says Jesus, and at once receive it with joy. That is the response we want from people this Christmas. But then verse 17 carries on. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I say in my life, this has probably been some of the most painful reality for me when friends who seem to be following jesus eventually walked away sometimes it happened really quickly sometimes it was a really short enthusiasm and it just fades sometimes actually i believe it can it can take years sometimes and that is painful and jesus wants his disciples to know that i think we're meant to respond by weeping over that it should grieve us but also it's meant to be a warning i think And Dan alluded to this all last week, you know, why we need other Christians around us is because those troubles and persecutions are going to come. And we need each other to keep going. Hebrews chapter 3, 12 to 13, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But here's the antidote, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's not kid ourselves that I would never be like that soil. We actually all could be like that soil. And we need the prayers and support of each other to build those roots in Jesus and in his word. Next type of soil you could describe as a crowded heart, verses 18 to 19. Again, Jesus saying inside each of us, there's this crowded marketplace of desires. It's really all-encompassing. Verse he says, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, all these things can pull us away from Jesus. The worries of this life. Again, I worry all the time about the future, about my family, about so many things. And actually, bizarrely, sometimes God really blesses us in our worries, going, look, come to me. He invites us to come to him. The problem arises when our worries distract us from him or lead us to question and doubt him. The worries of this life, they're something we need to be bringing to the Lord, the deceitfulness of wealth. Again, you don't need me to tell you, as as a country, as individuals, even as a church family, we're facing financial challenges. And in all that, we need to be responsible, we need to be careful, but also the danger is we begin to think if we just had more money, everything would be fine. Jesus actually is personifying wealth. He's saying wealth kind of whispers to you, just a bit more money and everything will be fine. A bit more money and you will be sorted. That's the deceitfulness of wealth. And the desire for other things, that just covers everything. Again, our our hearts are idle factories, John Calvin once said, that they just create new things and new people to worship. But actually Jesus says, none of those things will ultimately satisfy us. None of these things can actually deliver on the promises they give. How do we guard our hearts? Verse 20 by cultivating a disciples heart and what is a disciple someone who listens to Jesus and his word i want to see if we if we look at the good soil here and we feel kind of intimidated by it i think we're missing the point because actually the way jesus describes the good soil he's not describing a sort of spiritual superhero here He's not describing your, like, sort of Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or insert the name of your spiritual hero there. He's just talking about very simply someone who hears the word of God from Jesus, who accepts it, and then who allows it to produce a crop in their lives. It is actually as simple as that. Listen to the word of God, accept it, and God will change you. That's the good soil that's the response Jesus wants listen to me listen to my word and let it transform you he's actually saying it's not impossible this and it's like he's anticipating and responding to our doubts and objections when it comes to evangelism and indeed to the Christian life we think to ourselves in evangelism can Jesus really save my friend my family member the answer yes he can through the power of his word in their lives and then we look at ourselves and we think, well, I'm a rubbish witness to Jesus because I'm, I'm just not loving him and loving other people. Can Jesus really change me? And the answer is yes, he can through the power of his word in your life. Again, Isaiah 55, again, my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. A couple of verses later, verse 13, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Jesus says, actually, left-thrown devices, our hearts are full of thorns and weeds. And actually, we don't have to go around cultivating that. It's just going to happen. It's like in your garden. You probably don't try and grow those weeds and work really hard that they grow. They just will grow. You're trying to fight against them. But here, the Lord is saying in Isaiah, that actually God's word is able to overcome the thorns and the weeds in our hearts and in the hearts of the people we love and care about. Thanks to God's word, the thorns and the weeds will not have the last word. There is transformation and hope here through the power of God's word. And what will that transmission look like? It looks like that fruit of the spirit we read about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is good news for any Christian as we seek to live for Jesus in the world. And it's good news for the people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. They can be changed as they hear Jesus' word. So as we leave this parable, of the sower today. I hope we can see it's actually full of good news for us as we head into the Christmas season. Jesus is preparing his disciples for mission here, and his message is if you listen to me, listen to my word, I will produce fruit in your lives. And I have the power to do it in the lives of the people who don't yet know me as well. The key is will they listen? Will they accept? And through our lives being changed by the word of God, We are called to demonstrate something of the character of the gospel we are proclaiming. In this parable, it's full of truth for us that we need to hear at Christmas any other time of the year. There will always be different responses to Jesus and his word, but Jesus' word has the power to save and transform anyone who receives it through faith. That applies to us, that applies to our friends. Let me pray for us as we finish. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you're not some dodgy salesman promising us an easy experience when actually the reality is very different. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are honest with us about some of the obstacles we will face and continue to face both in our evangelism but also in our walk with you We'd love just to say those different soils are just people who don't know you, but Lord, we all feel those weeds and thorns and pressures in our lives. Lord, please, by your spirit working in us, Lord Jesus, would you grow the good fruit of the spirit in our lives? And would you encourage us, Lord, that in spite of those obstacles, in spite of our weakness, you are committed to producing a glorious harvest in our lives, a harvest of lives lived for you, and a harvest of people who don't yet know you today, but who will know you. We dare to ask through our witness as a church family and as individuals. Lord Jesus, thank you for the power of your word. Would it be changing our hearts, and would it change the lives and hearts of those we care about and want to speak to you about this Christmas? In your name we ask it, Lord Jesus. Amen.